Hey guys, it's Nathan. This is episode 65 of the Nathan Seawood Show. The Nathan Seawood Show, inspiring you to live an extraordinary life. Welcome. I hope you're having a great week. Thank you for tuning in and being with us each and every week. Had uh, so many great comments over the last few weeks from our episode with Gay Hendricks, with our episode with Charlie Hohen, with the guys from Unsettled. So thank you for participating. I'm loving this new Facebook Live feature and having you guys comment both during the broadcast and afterwards. It's really, really cool. So please keep it up. And I'm just back from my sailing trip in the Greek islands. It was amazing. I'll give you guys more details about that because I am just beaming about it. I'm so excited to share everything that happened on that trip. Uh, But before I do that, I want to introduce my guest today, who is one of my great friends, Pam Dibbs. Pam, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so so excited to be here. Me too. It's, uh, you know, whenever we talk, it's, you know, I think it's going to be a 10 minute chat and then three hours goes past. <laughs> I'm like, oh, there goes my Sunday afternoon in the best possible way. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I don't know if it's all bullshit, but, you know, we're going to now parade it in front of the public and see if they want to listen into our conversation. They are more than welcome and <laughs> yeah. hopefully we'll be a little more entertaining. Yeah, I hope so. Um, so by way of introduction and your accent, you are British, but actually Irish. Ah, yes. Well, my parents are Irish from Dublin, so I've actually never lived in Ireland, but did grow up in an Irish part of London. So it was more or less being Irish. (laughs) Yeah, right. Uh, Yeah. And you now live in Seattle, Washington. Yes. And I, I don't know where to start with you because there's so many things I was just gushing about well, you before about. Before, before we start about me, which of course we're going to spend most of the time on. Especially um, if it's more interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, I want to hear more about your sailing trip because that sounds so cool. Ah, sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm so excited about it. It was just the most amazing trip. So Derek and I, you know, we had a big lead up over the last couple of weeks. Most people watching would have seen that we were going to the Greek islands together. But, you know, we had this idea that if we brought together a bunch of really cool people, put them on a boat, didn't know where we were going each day, adventured around, uh, had lots of deep conversations and, and some coaching sessions, and then just embraced everyone in community and connection, then maybe something cool would come out of it. Yeah. And so that was kind of the idea. And man, it just ended up being like 10 times better than expected. Like the the sailing was incredible. It just created this container of everybody had a job on the boat. So everyone felt like they were participating. Every day we would sail from one town to the next. So it kind of felt like there was always a purpose to each day. Like we had a little mission that we had to achieve and, and the whole team had to come together. And Derek and I decided we were going to wake everyone up at 6.30 every morning and give them kind of a morning routine. So just make an effortless morning routine for the week. So everyone was up at 6.30. Derek led everyone through an hour of personal training that was not in a gym. It was meant to be just, look, it doesn't matter where you are, whether you're traveling, what you've got, you can work out and look after your body. So we we went into a local park. We picked up boulders. We were throwing boulders around our head. We were throwing them at each other. (laughs) Uh, And then from there, we led into an hour of meditation every day. Yeah. Uh, So in a different type of meditation, the first one I said, look, no excuses, just sit down for an hour and be with yourself. You Mm. don't need to do any fancy mindfulness things. You don't have to um, do a mantra. You're allowed to just sit and (laughs) close your eyes. Yeah. You don't have to call it meditation, but just kind of getting people past that thing of like, oh, I need to, I need to meditate. 
Yes. And he did get into meditation when in reality they just need to sit and close yeah. their eyes. Uh, and then we had a you know breakfast on board, deep discussion, insights from the, the morning, and then we set sail. And we just did that every day for six days. And the most common thing I heard from people was, I've been looking for a, a community, a family like this my whole life. Mm. People where I can just have fun together, where I, I'm not judged, where I can talk about deep stuff at any time and nobody's going to tell me to you know, stop being so deep or stop, you know, just have fun or anything. Everyone was able yeah. just to to share that. So, yeah, it's the start of something big, I hope. I, you know, I just was blown away by how successful it was. Thank you for asking. Oh, it sounds so cool. Yeah, I'm yeah. envious. I'm like, let me know when you're doing your next one. Yeah, that, I've had a lot of comments about that already, which is, yeah. which is cool. So back to you. You know, I, I love you. You're a great friend of mine and I'm in awe of you constantly for so many different reasons. Because you represent, I know it's confusing, but stay Yeah, it's very confusing. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, Explain yourself, Nathan. <laughs> well, what I love, I love people in the world that are doing lots of things they love that seemingly don't really cross over each other, mm-hmm. which is when you know someone's really committed to following their passions. So who I know you to be is someone that's had a successful company taking aerial pictures of other planes with your husband for 20 something years. years. Yeah, a 25 year successful business. I know you as a corporate coach to some of the titans in Seattle, Amazon, Microsoft. Yeah. Who am I missing? Costco. Costco. Yeah. yeah. And then most recently, I know you as a stand up comedian. <laughs> <laughs> and and you, so, don't think, you don't think those three things, you know, would naturally go together because it seems really normal for me. No. I've hung out a lot with a lot of pilots and um, <laughs> yeah. there's some comedic traits in there, but not that much. <laughs> yeah. So, I, you know, I, I know you as somebody that just uh, takes things on, uh, is not afraid of anything, inspires everyone, inspires me, and I'm excited to have you here today. Oh, thank you. Well, when I heard you describing that person, I was like, she sounds really cool. I'd love to meet her. <laughs> yeah, I can introduce you sometime. Yeah. I got context. Um, Excellent. And I, uh, I remember when you and I first met at the Rich Litvin event and that little VIP, do you remember that? The little VIP cocktail party. And um, and I was just like, oh my God, because you, you know, you had the aviation. Had, I, I mean, uh, I saw you from I, across the room. Was it? Yeah. And I, I, I was thought like, that's what you were going to say. Wow. That is one good-looking man. <laughs> yeah, you're not the first to say, so don't be embarrassed. Um, yeah, no, I remember it because I love comedy too. I'm a, somewhat of a comedy connoisseur Yeah, and have always wanted to do stand-up comedy and never had the balls to do it, um, like I'm sure a lot of people can relate to. And then you come up and you're like, oh, yeah, I've done stand-up comedy. <laughs> As if well, everybody and, had done it. And and what happened was I'd actually only at that point done one. And so here you and I are, we meet, we, you know, we've got aviation coaching and comedy in common. Like I mean, what are the odds? What are the odds? Yeah. And so I send you very vulnerably my first stand-up <laughs> set, uh, which about, you know, three people, only three people have seen. And you didn't reply. <laughs> And I was like, oh, my God, he thinks it's really shit. That means it is really shit, you know. <laughs> yeah, went to a dark place. Yeah. yeah, it's one of those ones I have a habit of looking at something and going, wow, that was amazing. She's amazing. And then going and making breakfast. 
<laughs> you know, <laughs> and never coming back to it. Yeah, um, I didn't but you were amazing. I've uh, <laughs> I've um, I've told you a joke so many times. Do you mind telling a little joke? Is that all right? Am I putting you on the spot? The oh, one about um, which one? I, I'm sure you've told it a few times, but the one when you said you arrived in Seattle. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. To pop down to the local cafe. Yeah. So this was actually before we'd moved to the US. So we were in Seattle doing some work for Boeing. And my husband had been here a few times. He was really excited. And he's like, let's go, let's go and get um, a coffee. And I'm like, well, I'm kind of, you know, a bit of a tea girl, you know, I don't know about the cold coffee thing. No, 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 you're going to love it. So he, you know, gets me up, drags me out. And the waft of cinnamon kind of takes us down the street because America smells like cinnamon in the mornings to Brits. Mm. I don't know what that's about, but anyway, so we we uh, we end up at this cute little coffee shop called Starbucks, and we mm. thought, you know, okay. it was a we thought it was a one off, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, no, I'm still going to have to have tea. And he said, uh, "Fuck the tea, I'm going to order one of those lates." <laughs> <laughs> the cafe late. Yeah. So we go up, and he orders his late, and they figure out what he means, and then. And then I order my tea and she says, uh, you want iced tea? I'm like, you want to put ice in my tea? No, I'd never heard of iced tea before. And then uh, she said, do you want lemon? I'm like, no, what, what are you doing to tea here? No. <laughs> it's a I simple want, concept. <laughs> yeah, I want milk. And she says, 2% milk? And I said, no, 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 way more than that. About 20% milk, 80% tea. And then I said... <laughs> How do you measure 98% tea and 2% milk? No wonder you put a man on the fucking moon. <laughs> oh, man. I love that joke so much. I still think that's hilarious. Just the thought of someone measuring out 2%, 98% tea. I, know. I, I, wa- I mean, I was like in awe of Americans anyway. So this just, you know, was yeah, like, this oh, of course, of course, this is what they do. <laughs> Yeah, they're totally measuring out 98% tea. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so funny. I, I love it. I hope you keep doing more and more um, comedy. I know you've got lots coming up. Um, yeah. yeah. How did you get into comedy? So, like, what yeah, – obviously a love of comedy, but why – this? because only, what, two years ago that you first did it? Yeah, yeah, just two years ago. Yeah, so I have always, like you, been a fan and – you know, Eddie Izzard, I was just obsessed with it, Eddie Izzard yeah. in London. And we've probably been to see him five or six times. And then I actually got to meet him. Amazing. Yeah. And so, but. How was meeting your idol? They say you shouldn't meet your idols, but how was it? Oh, he did not disappoint. Yeah. <laughs> he wasn't actually all that encouraging about me doing comedy. <laughs> right. <laughs> did you tell but him no. a 2% joke or did you try your material? I didn't hmm. try any material. I have to say I was a little starstruck. Yeah, you chambered your best stuff. Yes. <laughs> no, he was he was just amazing. Um, and I met him after a show. So just sort of listening to him talk about how his show went from his perspective, and he was very hard on himself, and just got an insight into sort of how he got into comedy and, and his process. And, yeah, it was just amazing. It's really cool. It's funny you mention it because, like, I remember, you know, growing up in the 90s, there was a lot of, like, American comedy on the TV that was just terrible. I'm not sure if it was because it was like American-based humor and I was living in the bottom of the planet in the middle of the ocean and none of it related, but I just didn't really get it. And I remember watching with my friends when I was about 20, 
Eddie Izzard's stand-up, the one where he does cake or death, you know, that whole, yeah, and just going, what is this? This is so well thought out. This is intelligent. This is funny, but it's also kind of educational. He was, I think he speaks in, he does the whole set in French. Yes. And English, like, I just thought, wow, this is the type of comedy that I want to just get right into. Yeah, no, yeah, he's, as you say, it's so intelligent and so unexpected. You just never mm. know where he's going. And so, I, you know, he, yeah, and he, so he really inspired me. And so we would go to the comedy club in London. You know, it was quite a scene, right. you know, a comedy scene in London. And then John and I would write comedy. So if we were bored on a plane, and I thought all couples did this. Normal. But, yeah, just normal. You know, mm. we would just write comedy about, you know, we ran a business together and there was a lot of funny stuff that, you know, we would see as funny that happened to us. And so we would just start, you know, writing a set. But of course, we never did anything with that. And so I always had it in my mind that one day I'm going to do it. And so it got to that point where, you know, as a coach and somebody who, you know, lives a big life. I'm like, uh, why is this thing on my bucket list and it hasn't been done? And it keeps sort of reoccurring. So you so, hate that feeling? Yeah. Even worse is if a client calls you out on it. Yes. Then you really have to do it. Yeah, then you really have to do There's it. no hiding. And what's been really fun for me is doing comedy and then just doing it in a comedy club just for fun, which was terrifying. If anybody yeah. ever wants to terrify themselves, I highly recommend doing stand-up and doing an open mic in a comedy club. And then from there, you know, I actually invited 10 friends to come and watch it. And that ensured that I would get on stage and just sort of, you know, hearing their reactions and then then got invited to do a coaching conference from one of uh, one of the people, you know, who who came along. And from there, I just kept getting invited to do other gigs at conferences and events. So then I was like, wow, this is actually a thing now. You know, it felt like this comedy train had left the station and I hadn't even known that I'd got on it. Yeah. Yeah. So I love it when things happen like that really organically that I never in a million years thought I would be getting paid to do comedy. And that's what's happening now. Do you have a title for yourself? What do you call yourself? No, I'm still working on that, actually. Um, (laughs) I tried when I was doing the coaching conferences, I was calling it coach Omedy. But people just couldn't get their yeah. mouths around that. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Sharon just made the comment that when you do coaching, it gives you infinite hilarious comedy content. It's so true. Yeah. It is that, Karen? Yes. yes. Spot on. It's spot on. I've always thought that the concept of like the life coach that doesn't do anything he teaches or yeah, I just thought that premise is hilarious. Yeah. Like just having a guy on the end of the phone that's kind of overweight, just sitting there eating donuts while he's going, yeah, what do you think about that? Yeah. And living a horrible life, struggling to make money, smoking cigarettes. Yeah, yeah. That's the thought that always comes to my mind. Yeah, yeah. That would be a good little um, video vignette to do. Yeah, we should work on that one. Mm-hmm. Well, I've yeah. been trying to get you to join me with some comedy for a while. A lot of people have, Pam. A lot of people have. Yes. Yes, yeah. it will happen. Yeah. So you're in Seattle. So take me, how do we make the jump? So you uh, grew up in London. Yes. You've been in Seattle for how long? 19 years. Right. And and yeah. I'm really bad at remembering when things happened. So, so I'll probably may have get been all of this 25. <laughs> You know, specifically between the age of five and 40. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no. A pretty broad it's range. About, it's about 
20 years, yeah. And why the move? What was the, the sudden burst of inspiration to go to the other side of the world? So we were running our aviation photography company in the UK called The Plane Picture. And John was traveling a lot to the US to do shoots, particularly out of Boeing. So we're working for a lot of the European airlines and photographing and videoing the planes on their delivery flights. So we got to spend a little bit of time in Seattle and kind of fell in love with the area. But prior to that, when I was about 20, I worked on a summer camp in Vermont teaching swimming and then traveled around the US for a month with a group of friends on the Greyhound bus. Whenever I see a Greyhound bus, I start to sort of shake now. (laughs) PTSD. Um, Yeah. I fell in love with the States. And I I just had this, you know, I, I remember standing in a grocery store in Boston and just having this like, I, I think I want to live here. You know, just just this sense that one day I think I'd like to live here. I think I'd really love it. And so the aviation market is in the US. And so mm. it made a lot of sense for us to move our business here. We're also kind of fed up of the kind of rat race in London and, you know, the cost of living. And you have to be extraordinarily wealthy to live well in London. So, yeah. So and we were up for the adventure. Brilliant. So you make the decision, like it's a huge decision, right? But you're up for the adventure. So you move to Seattle and then it all just goes perfectly, right? Yeah, it all went perfectly well, just as predicted. Yeah. And of course, actually, what was interesting is a lot of people were very kind of thrown by our decision to move. You know, it brought up a lot of stuff for others, Hmm. you know, like, well, you can't just do that. I mean, you don't have anyone sponsoring you. And what if it doesn't work out? And you know, so, you know, the whole tall poppy syndrome. Familiar with it. Yes. So, you know, if you rise up, the poppy rises up above, it will, you know, get cut off. And so, you know, we took the risk and moved our business to the US, started it up again in the US, uh, in Seattle. And then our first year of business here, 9-11 happened. And we basically lost all of our business overnight. Mm. So, the yeah. Airlines we- crash, no money to do. No money. And of course, the first thing that goes is marketing budget. Sure. So all of our contacts got made off. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And the cleaning. And the cleaning, yeah. So all of our contacts got um, laid off. And yeah, it was just such a huge. And, and, you know, obviously, it was a much worse impact for many others, 9-11. But yeah, I mean, it's talk about having the rug pulled out from under us. And we only had visas to work for our company. So it's not like we could have got jobs or didn't have any other choice. We didn't have any other choice in the US. So um, so we got to work on, you know, one of the things I sat down with John and said is like, who are our other clients and what else could we do that's maybe a little out of the box? Well, I remember you saying at the time that John's passion wasn't really airlines anyway. That was where the money was, but he didn't love it. No, no, he didn't. And so his real passion is World War II historic planes. Yeah. And so we were already working for um, the Flying Heritage Collection up here in Seattle. Um, John came up with an idea of interviewing veterans that were connected to, to that collection and to those planes. And so we ended up being involved in a project that interviewed 150 World War II veterans all over the Amazing. world. And it, and again, it's one of those things where that project would never have happened unless we'd have had to think out of the box and 
This is why I love you, though, and this is why I wanted to talk to you because, you know, a lot of people would have gone, okay, that's it, failed, it's a disaster, pack up and go home. Mm-hmm. That you was went, not an option. What can we do? Yeah, that was not an option. You know, I've always believed. Um, so when John and I first got together, we made a deal with each other that we we would have no boring careers. So it was just like, and I said that. Account was out straight away. Yeah, I was like, it's probably going to mean we're going to be self-employed and we're going to have, you know, moments of that being amazing and moments of that kind of being quite sucky, you know, because when you're both self-employed. <laughs> and so we just said, yeah, we, we want that kind of life. We also decided we didn't want kids. And yeah, we wanted big careers that we loved, that were full of what we're passionate about. And I also realized that would mean that we would need to reinvent. So it wasn't just going to be one thing. Mm. It's kind of what I, I've been going through this at the moment. Like I'm almost a year out of flying now, out of you know working. And the last two months have been the hardest so far, just in terms of having to reinvent and go, ah, oh, okay. You know, I've had some challenges, cash flow issues and stuff. And it's like, okay, you got to get creative. Yeah. And you just got to constantly reinvent yourself. Like the way of being of employee is just, it's so different to the way of being of entrepreneur. Nothing's certain, things come up, things get thrown at you. But I think what you said, like as long as you look at every challenge as an opportunity to grow or get creative and money doesn't necessarily solve everything, the lack of money or the 9-11 challenge can actually spark a whole new mm-hmm. thing. So. But that's a, that's a very big mindset shift I've been finding. Yeah, it's very cool. And it's been so cool to watch you, Nathan, you know, make that decision to leave what many people would consider to be, you know, a dream job. It's been just amazing to watch your journey. Yeah, thank you for that. I mean, it's interesting. Like I haven't, there's never been a moment in the last year where I've thought, oh, I wish I was just back flying. Yeah. You know, I, I have to just, you know, preface it like I loved my job and I enjoyed it and I loved the people and it was amazing. But there hasn't been a moment in the last year, even in the hardest times, where I thought, God, I wish I was just popping off to work on Monday. Yeah. You know, <laughs> even when it's felt hard, I've those challenges have been so much more enjoyable. I mean, I remember when I was flying thinking that I wish life was a little bit more challenging. I wish I could stretch my brain a little bit. So I have to remember when it gets tough, you asked for this, like you wanted a more challenging existence. So yeah, yeah, I do enjoy and, it know, even though it's tough. In, you know, when I think about my, the clients that I've worked with in organizations, most people when I first start working with them are really having quite a sucky experience at work. And I think that's common. You know, I think we've, I don't know about you, but I grew up with the idea that work should suck. It should be hard. Yeah. You know, and how I had the insight to reject that. Um, But that's something I'm really passionate about helping people with. Because, you know, you look at the last, you know, Gallup survey, and only a third of employees in organizations are engaged in their work or their workplace. So, yeah, what are we, you know, what are we doing wrong? It's imagine what would be possible if people, most people loved Mondays and loved going to work. You're trusted by executives at some of the biggest companies now in America, yeah. like Amazon, like Microsoft and Costco. You know, what do you see talking to these guys? Like, what are the, some of the things you notice in these top-level execs? Well, in the top-level execs, I notice how lonely they are and quite disconnected. 
they're disconnected from feedback about what's going well and what isn't with their teams and their groups because they have a lot of people around them who are sort of painting the picture as rosy as they can. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's a frustration for them to sort of have their sort of finger on the pulse of what's really happening. And then and then also that sort of isolation of being at the top. You know, there is definitely that's why I think coaching is so valuable for for anyone, but especially for for leaders at that level, because they really and that's the thing I hear the most is that they don't have the opportunity to talk openly with people with anyone who doesn't have an agenda. Mm-hmm. That's a pretty rare event for them. I, the corporate world is completely fine to me, so I'm going to ask not very good questions. But um, if I was a corporate coach, I'd just say leave. Yeah, <laughs> I'd be fired after a week because I'd just say you should all leave. <laughs> There's only one. You'd never be happy here, no matter how good the company. Is. <laughs> well, it's interesting. You know, I'm coaching more individual clients now than I am corporate clients. And a lot of those clients have actually left their organizations and then hired me privately to help them with setting up a business or, or transitioning to somewhat of a different career or different company or, or, you know, but often I can, I can help people with finding uh, a place within the organization if they do still want to stay there that might suit them better. You but do you have, have clients that are happy in the, in I the do. Yeah. I do. Yeah. And, you know, it's that, that whole thing about um, wherever you go, there you are. You know, so some people think, oh, I just need to change organizations and everything's going to be fine. Well, you're still you. And so what yeah. are you bringing to every work situation? So that's what I get really curious about. But yeah, you know, at one point I was having most of my senior leaders quit you know, just that was just happening. Um, nothing I intended, but, you know, I would come back at the end of the day and say to John, oh, another one bit the dust. And he's like, you're going to get known as the quick coach, you know. Yeah. <laughs> it's a fine line. <laughs> yeah. But I guess, you know, as funny as it is, it's also an organization long term, it's better to have someone engaged in the role than someone that's not enjoying it. Absolutely. Yeah. And I always say to organizations that that's a possible outcome of coaching. So, um, and that, that's probably better for everyone. If and so what have you learned? You know, you talked about the Gallup poll, 33% of people are disengaged in the corporate environment. Now. No, only 33% are engaged. Oh, right. Yeah. I mean, two thirds of people disengage. Mm. Yeah. And is it bad leadership? I think it's a combination of things. You know, I think a lot of large organizations have got very political. So, you know, one of the things I notice is that when leaders are making decisions, one of the first things they have to think about are the optics. You know, the decision looks and has to factor in. And so that starts to make decision making tough because they're in they're in a very political environment. And so, yeah, I think I think it's a number of things. I think that the structures that we have in organizations right now worked you know many many decades ago and for the kind of work we're asking people to do now um i don't think these structures are these hierarchical structures are are necessarily as helpful as they could be you know you and i are good friends with jen and she talks about uh, what about organizations that look more like an octopus where you know you had these kind of strands that could operate on their own Mm. 
uh, within the whole of the organization. And I, I get really interested and excited about as we move in the future of work, like what different organizational structures could look like to support people to be at their best at work, to do their best and to have some fun. Like work should be fun. Yeah. You know, we I, should really love Mondays because, you know, like I do with my work, you know, I love work. It doesn't even feel like work. Yeah, it's because you're happy doing it. <laughs> there is that. <laughs> uh, I read that uh, the, the, the corporate structure came from the military. Yeah. When started because that's why we call them chief executive officers and everything because it's, it's military. That's why we call it a company. Yes. They're all military terms. Yeah. And it is all based around politics and hierarchy and competition. Yeah. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see where it goes. I mean, there's a, a huge exodus into consulting and freelancing and everything. So I wonder where the, the corporation will land. I know you guys in, in Washington or Seattle are at full employment, right? So, yeah. um, you know, finding the right labor is a challenge. Yeah. So they will have to address these issues. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's going to change. It, it, you know, it is changing and it will continue to. So it's exciting. I'm like really interested to see and be part of all of that. Yeah, you're right at the front of it. What are your thoughts on death? Mm. <laughs> Funny you should mention that. <laughs> I just wanted to lighten the mood. I felt like it got a bit serious. Oh, it's one of my favorite topics, <laughs> as you know. Yeah, yeah. so uh, your mother passed away a few weeks ago. And uh, I'm not going to say sorry for that for, because you mourned her passing a long time ago. Yeah. Um, so so she had Parkinson's disease for 40 years and um, dementia for probably about the last 12. And then she was on a feeding tube for the last five years and was un- unresponsive. And so, you know, this is a, an example of what we've got very good at which is extending dying, not extending living. Mm. And so it's been this wonderful event for me, for for her to be finally able to be at peace. Um, and yeah, I, you know, she, she hasn't been able to be in relationship for 10 years at least with anybody. And so, yeah, I, I grieved losing her a long time ago as in sort of losing her in relationship um, in my life. And so, um, so yeah, I've actually experienced the actual passing um, as very peaceful and quite lovely. And you've had some funny reactions to that. I have. Yeah. Yeah. It's just not, you know, there's been a lot of pressure to grieve in a way that, you know, people think you should when your mother dies and, you know, I feel like I should be wearing black every day. And, you know, it just hasn't felt like that for me. And, and actually, one of the things that gave me so much joy is I, um, I did her eulogy in the big Catholic church in, in London. And so was able to really talk about the fact that I had mixed emotions and, and I had so many people come up to me afterwards and say how pleased they were that I said that because they were feeling guilty about that. And also I've told some funny stories about her and, you know, just had everybody, I really wanted people to remember who she was because it was so long ago. Mm. Um, it felt really important to, you know, just bring some of that out. And she was very funny, my mum. You know, I was told a story about um, 
I was in the car with her once when she was still driving. She, my dad always, you know, was trying to be helpful. And so he would stand in the middle of the road and he would try and help her as she was reversing out of the driveway. And so she's sort of sitting in the car looking in the rearview mirror and she has not asked him for any help, right? So she's not happy about this. And um, and she's just not moving. And I said, you're, you're right, mum. And she looks, looks in the rearview mirror and she says, is it wrong that I want to run him over? <laughs> she said, I won't do it today. Yeah. And then, you know, she just carried on and and she you know so she she was she had a wicked sense of humor she was really funny and i was i was so glad to be able to sort of bring that out you know and just remind people of of who she was mm. yeah yeah i know this has given you a very um unique perspective on life and death and yes you're um also involved in some things around euthanasia right in uh, in washington yeah what have you learned about that a couple of years ago because of my mum's situation you know i wanted to sort of do something and so they had approved the death with dignity law in washington state so i worked with an organization that's now called end of life washington and we help people take advantage of that so if they have a six month or less diagnosis they can take advantage of an assisted death and um, it's just been the most amazing experience that I'm so grateful for. So we would actually be with people, you know, from helping them make the decision and helping their families, you know, with that through to actually having the medication and then actually being with them when they take the medication. So we would actually mix up the powder um, and they have to take the medication themselves. And just watching people and uh, helping them create the end of life experience that they want mm. and watching these beautiful end of life experiences and being with people during that and how peaceful they are and sometimes joyful uh, to be able to make that decision. And there's a really interesting thing that's come out of the, the death with dignity movement is that only about 50 or 60% of people take the medication who have it. So the rest of people actually end up often passing away naturally. Mm. Um, but for everybody who has the medication, what we tend to see is improved outcomes in their health. So just having the medication, isn't that interesting? Yeah, How just knowing when, that they have the choice. Yeah, when we take away the prospect of you know, or the fear that you might have a very painful death or it might be completely out of your control, and when we can take that away for people, just how much, how much the impact of peace of mind has mm -hmm. uh, for them and their families and, and actually on their health. So they very sometimes will live way beyond their six month prognosis because they have the medication. Extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah. 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 So that has been just, I'm so grateful to have, to have those experiences and, and be involved and this is the stuff in we, we don't get to uh, learn about because we don't have the conversation. Right. This is the number one conversation that we're not having. You know, people are not talking about their end of life. They're not facing death because of all the fear they have around it. So, a re you know, there was one poll that, that reported one in eight people consider themselves immortal. 
<laughs> I think I'm in that category. Yeah. I, so, you know, let's start easing up, you know, on how we talk about how we can talk about death. And so what would it look like? Even just having conversations about end of life. You know, Steve Jobs was somebody who, you know, um, said that death was one of the most powerful tools he had in making his big decisions in life. And he would look at himself in the mirror every morning and say, if this was my last day, would I want to be doing what I'm about to do today? And if it had been no for more than a few days, then he knew that it was time to change something. So actually, if we start to embrace death as a really powerful tool and advisor for ourselves, you know, I think growing up with a mother who, you know, she was diagnosed with Parkinson's when I was about 10 or 11 and growing up with a mother who who was sick. I, I think I always had that sense of you just never know what tomorrow could bring. And so mm-hmm. wanted to always think that really helped me to live a very full life. And so I think we can use we can use death in a very powerful way. I think that's being missed. And I I also think if we could have more discussions about our end of life, you know, most people say they don't want to die in hospitals. Where do most people die? Hospitals. Hospitals. And that's because we're not planning for our end of life. We're not having conversations with our family and our loved ones. And that that's not serving us. Mm. I don't know about you, but I was brought up with the um, very hopeful Irish saying, you know, that life sucks and then you die. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah but i think when people are talking about that i think what they're really talking about is death sucks so i think my life's just going to suck too yeah you know um, so it's all pointless anyway we all end yeah. up dying yeah mm. yeah it's all going to end so <laughs> <laughs> deal with that and, my, my um, sense is too that yeah. people just don't they, they think it's morbid to talk about their own death or they just don't want to think about it or they don't want to uh, think about all the difficult feelings and grieving that's going to come with it. So they'd rather not talk about it. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm on a mission now, Nathan. So mm. there's an organization called Death Dinners and I'm going to be organizing a death dinner soon where it, it helps you bring together your loved ones or whoever you want, your friends, and you put a dinner together just to talk about death and you send people videos and articles to read beforehand. And then you facilitate a discussion about death. And I often find that when you do, you know, when I talk to clients about death, it actually really eases things to talk about it and Mm. to talk about the fear that you might have and and what's the real fear behind that. And how is that getting in your way of living to your full potential? Yeah, it's Leanne, uh, you know, was on the show 10 episodes ago talking about James's death. Yeah. And she really, you know, the theme for the month was love and connection. So, you know, why would you bring someone on to talk about their, their fiance that had died? But she said that, you know, love is really created from death mm. and that she, you know, it drives love because you know that everything is impermanent. Mm. Everything can go away. And when you're really in touch with the fact that this will end, whether it's an end in the relationship or, or death, then that actually presences you to loving more in the moment Mm, absolutely love that and you know it was James that said to me a few years ago in a a conversation he said you know what you do Pam you bring things to life that are dead and he said whether that's a career or a relationship or waking somebody up to who they really are or that stayed with me yeah it's a fascinating topic I just uh you know I'm in awe of you because 
one, you've had your own experience of it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, someone not getting to choose how they die. Um, and I'm just in awe of what you've done with that, you know, where you've gone with it. And like you say, on a mission to just have conversations, it's, it's so cool. Yeah. I mean, my mum was very vocal with me about not wanting to ever be kept alive without any quality of life. And she had written a very extensive living will about 30 years before, but it got lost. And so it became very hard, you know, for my dad to make decisions. And he was given sort of conflicting medical advice. And that's the other thing I would say is if we're not planning for our end of life, we add to the burden of our families. Yeah. And that's been my experience, you know, is that that became very hard to make the decisions on behalf of someone else. Um, yeah, I know you had a little bit of um, religious stuff come into it as well. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, my parents were are Irish Catholics. And so my uh, my whole extended family is is Catholic. So, yeah, I mean, I, I know that that was, that was challenging for my dad. Yeah. So where, where can people learn more about this specifically, this topic, like death sentence and stuff like that and encouraging yeah. the conversation? I mean, it's a, it's yeah, a fascinating just, topic. Just put death in it if you're interested. I mean, that would be like my first thing to do, even just to look at that website because they've got all sorts of videos and articles. And so I think it's deathdinners.org. Um, <laughs> it's actually run by um, people in Seattle. But yeah, so that, that would be a really fun thing to do. And then to actually get yourself a living will if you don't have one uh, or some kind of, you know, good document around your wishes and talk to your family and your loved ones about it and decide who is going to be your health advocate. And it might not, might not be your partner. Mm. Um, for instance, mine is my sister, um, just because I think it would be really hard for John. Right. And you can often... The organization in Seattle, End of Life Washington, they have their own document you can download for free, a legal document, which is, you know, a, a living will. And many of those uh, organizations, Compassion and Choices is another one in the U.S., um, have documents that you can download. So you can very easily just start to think about, think about that. Yeah. Well, thank you for going there, Pam. Thanks for bringing it up because it's a difficult conversation. But yeah, yeah I think one worth having, or at least a conversation worth starting. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and I and I love that piece about what Steve Jobs did every morning. You mm. know, I think there's a lot there. Yeah, there is. Yeah, allowed to drive your life. Don't be yeah. fearful of it. Yeah. Um. So, what's coming up for you? Like, if you look ahead with uh, comedy, coaching, the plain picture business. What can yeah. expect from you in the next few years? Well, we just, with the Plain Picture Company, we just have been working on a very exciting film documentary called The Spitfire. Uh, called Spitfire. And um, that was released in the US just a few weeks ago and in London a month ago. And it's, you know, been adopted by the Royal Air Force as the official film for the centenary celebrations. and. Yeah. 100 years so, there, I guess. Yeah, so we're, um, that's been really exciting. So we're now, we now have a number of other TV and film projects. So John is um, aerial director for two feature films coming up. And, just incredible. Um, yeah. So that has been just super cool. And again, just us deciding a few years ago in a, you know, strategy meeting that I sat down, John and I decided that, for him, he felt like he really wanted to move into TV and film. So mm -hmm. you see all of the success of that now, but there's been three years of really hard work 
that have gone into, you know, having him be in the right conversations and meeting the right people to to transition from being known as a stills photographer to doing TV and film. Yeah. So you're yeah. saying he's not an overnight success. It, it's, people, it's so funny because people are saying to him, oh, this was so lucky, this <laughs> Spitfire documentary. You're so lucky that this fell into your lap, you know. Man, I mean, um, any success story, I just, I, if I fall into the trap myself of, of comparing, but you just don't know what people are going through and just, you know, presencing us to the 9-11 story, which is, what, yeah. 17 years ago that, you know, you had to re- reform your business. Yeah. And then however many times since then to now be, you know, doing two feature films. I know. So inspiring. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, so that that's really exciting. And then coaching, I'm working, you know, one-on-one with uh, a handful of clients, amazing clients. I just love my one-on-one work. I'll, I do two-day intensives with people at the beginning and then, you know, we generally coach for about six months and just watching the amazing things that people are doing, whether it's starting a business, shifting something in their career or in their life, whatever it is, whatever they're up to. And then, yeah, the comedy stuff. So, yeah, I've got um, a gig coming up at an HR conference in Seattle and um, putting my reel together. So I'm doing some more filming for that. Sounds so professional. I know, doesn't it? I know, I'm like listening to myself going, wow, is that really I've got a reel. (laughs) But, But, yeah, just lots of exciting conversations about doing some more conferences and so what I'm gonna eventually do is actually bring in the topic of death so Mm. you know help you know lighten up around death using comedy oh man yeah you know who's doing that nobody I know know. yeah I can't wait to see that I'm really excited um yeah and anyone that works with you or anyone that uh wants to work with you I mean they know that you're out there doing it yourself you're not you're not the ghost that doesn't practice what you preach you're someone <laughs> that constantly puts themselves out there faces the battles you know shifts and reframes when they have to so yeah it's awesome and a lot of fun yeah. it is a lot of fun yeah so last question before we finish do you have a dark side oh and how do you embrace it so i would say my dark side would have to be judgment Mm. so you know when I get what I call in the grip you know whether I'm tired or you know I've just forgotten in the moment how the human experience works and I think that I'm right and my ego has taken over which I think just makes the human right it's judgment you know I can get I can get judgmental about myself Mm. about others you know um and that's my warning you know, when I start to find I'm getting, you know, buying into a lot of judgmental thinking is, you know, my warning that to take a break. This is not the time to have a deep, you know, relationship conversation or, yeah. <laughs> you know. Um, but, yeah, I would say that that's a default place for me is to be in a lot of judgment and be in that kind of righteous place. Yeah, I love that. I love that you say that, um that's how you handle it too because i think that's the hardest thing when we're in those states of i think mine's judgment too <laughs> we won't give you examples but trust me um but yeah i know and i yeah I, I said something to my brother the other day he was mentioning someone and i wrote back a really snarky remark he said boy somebody's grumpy today and so i, I know that okay it's a sign i need some sleep yeah some self-care yeah yeah 
I know. It's the hardest part is recognizing that this is probably not true. This it's is probably not going to last. Exactly. Then remembering yeah. that it's temporary, it will pass. Yeah. And I don't have to believe it. Yeah. Yeah. So hard, but that's the work. Yeah. It's great though for me now knowing it's my trigger. You know, like when it when it happens, I know that uh oh, something's up. Yeah. The quality of my thinking has really deteriorated and it's on me, you know? <laughs> I love that. I swear a lot, but um, I would love to be able to say, oh, the quality of my thinking is deteriorating. <laughs> <laughs> so much to work on. Um, Pam, so much fun. Love hanging out with you. Oh, you and, too. Yeah, we'll go for another couple of hours, but we'll get rid of the people watching. Okay. <laughs> um, so thanks, guys. Uh, check out Pam's website, diplomalife.com. And as always, thank you for joining. Share the episode around. Give it a like. Tell your friends. And I will love you forever. Thanks again for watching or listening if you're on the iTunes podcast. And I'll be back with episode 66 of The Naked Sandwich Show. That was The Nathan Seward Show, inspiring you to live an extraordinary life.